Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. Space. The final frontier. An empty, endless expanse of nothing. Or teeming with life. But do we really need to look beyond the confines of our world to find loneliness? We are currently fighting a pandemic. And in its wake, a loneliness epidemic. Despite our constant striving for companionship, it could be said that to be lonely is to be human. And what's more human than exploring our hopes and fears in literature? So here to help us discuss loneliness and the human condition as seen through the science fiction lens is the incomparable Leah Whiteley. Thank you for joining us today. Would you please like to introduce yourself to our listeners, even though you have been on once before, but we love you so much that you are here to join us again. I I have been on before. I'm delighted to be here again. So thank you for that. Um, I'm Aaliyah Whiteley. Um, I write strange novels and short stories. I've been doing that for a while. Um, That's that's it. That's what I do. Oh, I should probably say that Skyward Inn is the is the new one that's coming out in March. Yes, and it's very good. I just finished it. Oh, good. And you enjoyed it. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I was explaining to uh, my partner like your books. I, I hope this. I hope you find this a compliment. <laughs> but for me, your books are fabulously weird. <laughs> that's definitely a compliment yeah okay absolutely. good <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I like it when books really surprise me so I try and write books that really surprise other people like, where you think I just don't know where this is gonna go I think that's that's kind of what I'm aiming for a lot of the time so yeah <laughs> you definitely <laughs> achieved that with a beauty I really did yes <laughs> I think I really I really pushed that one as far as I possibly could so um yeah <laughs> Very successfully, though, I say. I always uh, recommend that to people, though. You always think about, oh, well, who am I recommending this to? And are they going to be okay with that? Yeah, they're going to be okay with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. You need to check first whether, whether that's yeah. going to be the right audience for it. But uh, I do I do love it when people come to that one and, uh, and read it through for the first time. So let's carry on and turn our minds to loneliness. Ah, <sighs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I want to apologise to everybody for the whole just about to sit here and talk for an hour about loneliness, which might not be what anybody wants to talk about right now. So there we go. Well, there is that, but maybe... It's topical. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it is topical, but also if we talk about loneliness and understand loneliness, maybe we'll come to find some sort of feeling of togetherness. And now I feel a bit like some sort of hippie, but yes... <laughs> That is the thing about loneliness, isn't it? Is the the paradox at the heart of it is you've got to be able to describe it to somebody else to achieve togetherness, loneliness, togetherness. Mm, yes. As you say, it's all a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, let's, let's start. So why do you think that stories of, of isolation and loneliness are so common, particularly in sci-fi? So I think that... Uh, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms until you you kind of said that that's where the conversation uh, might go in preparation for this. And um, then it really reminded me of, I'm about to do an anecdote, so sorry for that. It reminded me of when I used to be a chambermaid for years in my, in my teenage years. I used to work at a hotel over the summer months. And one day I was doing the rounds and went into room uh, 27 and walked in there and just had the strongest sensation that something wasn't right. But I couldn't have put my finger on uh, what it was. And then I saw like a very big black fly on the wall. I, I just had that feeling that something wasn't right. And then I saw another fly and another one. And I turned around and the whole wall behind me was just covered in flies, just black with them and they'd kind of blocked out they were all over the window as well they'd blocked out the sunlight and I I went back downstairs and said we've got a fly problem in room 27 and I was presented with a can of fly spray 
and uh, told to to go and deal with it. And I I felt extreme loneliness as I walked walked back to that room to <laughs> to deal with the fly problem and sort of sprayed half heartedly with, with the can of fly spray at a few of them and just thought this is this is never going to this is never going to work. And um, yes, I think. Once you start looking at, it doesn't link back in, in a strange way. Um, once you start looking for loneliness in sci-fi, uh, then you you see it once, you see it twice, you see it three times, and then you turn around and it's just absolutely everywhere. I'm beginning to think it might be the pervasive factor in in science fiction and even in literature in general. In fact, like the loneliness of the human condition. Yeah, so that's where I am with that right now. But I wasn't really thinking about that until you asked me about loneliness. And now it's kind of all I can think about right now. So thank you for that. <laughs> Did that? That's a absolutely terrifying story. Yeah, it was um, absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was an absolutely horrible moment. But um, It's like a nightmare or it's like um, a Philip K. Dick novel. Yeah, it was. And you know what? That's That's really odd because I've just finished reading a biography of Philip K. Dick and the whole of his life was so lonely as well. I read um, Emmanuel Carrera's biography, which is called I Am Alive and You Are, you are Dead, which is a great title. <laughs> and um, like the pervasive quality of loneliness in his work and in that biography as well. So yeah, I'm just kind of awash with this realisation of loneliness in all the things I've written as well, I think, maybe. Yeah. I would say that... I see loneliness as a theme in most of your books. I mean, yeah. definitely Skeen Island, definitely Loosening Skin. It's uh, And Greensmith too. I mean, the traveller is all, he's completely isolated by himself and lonely and looking for companionship. So, yeah. yes, <laughs> you are very preoccupied with loneliness. <laughs> but I don't, I I've never thought of it in those terms before. I think I would have thought, I'd think of it in terms of they're looking for something. They're looking for answers. But I think also what they're looking for is for somebody else to understand that they're looking. And maybe that's a big part of loneliness is, you know, that you're looking for somebody else to understand you. And of course, that would be a huge, a huge issue in sci-fi, wouldn't it? Because isn't that what we're kind of talking about here in terms of, is there anybody in the universe that understands us? So that that's an obvious sci-fi question. But really, I can't think of many sci-fi novels that don't touch on it in some way or another, or that it's it's there. And it, maybe it's just that writers are like a really, really, really lonely bunch. Do you think it's that? I don't know what you're saying about me, honestly. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, I'm pretty lonely. I mean, seriously, if nobody would say, Lucy, you need to get out for a walk, I'd probably just stay here all day. <laughs> I think certainly in speculative fiction, being lonely is possibly the strongest plot device you can have. Because if you have it in horror, then let's face it, it's always more comforting when there are people around, even if they're pretty useless, even if they're just going to be cannon fodder, you still feel yeah. better with a you know, lot of people around. And in fantasy, yeah. the only way for the proper hero in good classic fantasy to defeat the big bad is on his own or is the key point where he or she has that revelation of how they're going to defeat them kind of has to come to them alone. So yeah. I kind of wonder if it's part of the human condition, but also just part of the needs of any novel that, yeah. apart from romance, obviously, that you <laughs> need to be on your own to have the major moving forward points or the major atmosphere or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's self-revelation, isn't it? It's a moment of, of self-understanding. So you need an element of self-containment in order to make that work. So I think I see a crime, you know, crime definitely, that sort of lone job of deducting. Yeah, I definitely see it everywhere. I think, I mean, I watch Midsummer Murders and so you hardly ever see Barnaby alone, but certainly in the earlier ones, you used to have little flashes of insight into his mind and sort of see what's going and going on and yeah. how he was developing his theories. And obviously with Columbo, you've got that whole thing of, you know, it's just Columbo wandering around, staring at stuff, having another cigarette, having to think about it. Um, yeah. And certainly when I've been 
reading books that I've not enjoyed or I felt characters weak. It's when someone has stepped in and taken over and you're like, oh, but they were working their way up to figuring that out. And now someone stepped in and told them, which of course you don't get if it's just a singular character on its own. You know, it, it is like you say, it's the strength that you need to get through. And then obviously after that, you take all of your friends to go and kick the ass of the big bad. And, you know, it's all good. And then it's all about teamwork. But for that crucial point or, yeah. you know, at the end of a horror movie, there's someone alone. It's it's more intense because it's just the way the human condition is. It is, yeah, and I think it's it's fear and loneliness, isn't it? Maybe it's the fear of loneliness, but then the self revelation is overcoming the loneliness to realise that you can act effectively. I see that in horror, certainly, certainly. I think it, as well what you're saying about you know where people unite at the end, so you get that it's really the flip side of loneliness, isn't it? Says so you know we can effectively communicate and form bonds that overcome problems. So that's. Yeah, that's the other side of the loneliness coin. It is. But again, I think the loneliness is intrinsic to that because you've got to, you quite often get characters who don't work well with others and they need that moment of being alone to go, oh, you know what? Actually, I should work well with others. I should do this. And they disappear off and do it. I, cert- I certainly see that a lot in sort of kids' books and things, this idea that you have a moment of being on your own and then realise that actually what you need is other people, but you don't actually come to that conclusion until there's no one else around. It's a bit strange. You've got to go through that moment of I'm, I'm, I'm alone. How am I going to make this work? Uh, and again, we're talking about paradoxes here, aren't we? So you've got to appreciate alone to be able to make together work, alone together, together alone. It's... Uh, yeah. Wow. We're in deep territory. Yes. Uh, but that's, that's also, um, something that, uh, is, could be applied to all your books. They're, they're all deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yes, I guess that's true. Yeah. I hope some of them work, work more on, uh, on levels of being entertaining or that they are all entertaining in some way, but I, yeah, they, they certainly move to deep places. Well, I finished all of them, so that's usually a good sign. <laughs> yeah, thank, you. thank you. That's amazing. We mentioned that we are all lonely. It's the human condition and you know, we explore that through through stories. But do you think that we look for kind of comfort in reading about other people fighting with loneliness or you know, what what is it that makes those kinds of stories appeal to readers? I think it's part of what makes the connection between reader and writer is probably looking looking for answers to that on both sides. So I think it's probably a deep-seated need to communicate with other people in order to overcome loneliness. And that manifests on the part of the writer by writing the book and it manifests on the part of the reader by reading it. So you're essentially in a kind of covenant, aren't you, that you're trying to reach each other, which I find a really amazing and comforting thought. So uh, maybe the act of writing itself is, is, you know, trying to overcome and reach out and reading is receiving the information if it's, if it goes well. Yeah. I mean, I'd say reading is an act of reaching as well, just um, kind of on the other side of the fence, as it were, you know, it's you holding out your hands, waiting, empty hands, (laughs) hoping somebody will take them. Yeah. Take, take you somewhere with them. I think that's why we have sort of favorite favorite writers is because the voice is so comforting. It's a voice that you know, uh, you feel like you get to know. For, like for me, I would say, you know, you have you have writers that you read because you know you want to be comforted, and I'm hugely comforted by Graham Greene. Me too. Really, oh, I love love I love him so much. Um, I'm desperate to never get to the end of them, so I I've been inking out like the final few. I haven't kind of read. I can reread, but you know, it's that thing of finding the voice afresh is so comforting. But just what what an amazing pair of hands! You know, we talk about it in a really weird way, like a voice, a pair of hands. There's this kind of physicality to it, but a great voice, a great comfort to you that you find in, in the written word for, from particular authors. Yeah, amazing. Uh, so I really like the idea of this question of loneliness and gender. And I I think we've touched on this a few times kind of in previous episodes, um, when we obviously touch on basically all things gender in previous episodes. Yeah. But the idea of men and women experiencing loneliness differently, mm. is that a thing? I don't know. I 
the, the sheer impossibility of describing my personal loneliness to somebody and them describing theirs necessarily kind of makes it impossible to to quantify in any way, doesn't it? But I see I see men maybe struggle with loneliness in a different way, although I don't know if it's a different loneliness. But thinking about it, you know, my the place where I live set up a a shed day before all of lockdown and whatever came along and uh, ruined all these social things and the idea that they could have a place to go to and just be together doing some activity because women seemed to have that more easily almost so I'm interested in that Mm. the kind of idea that women find it maybe easier to form friendships across across loneliness um, or to speak about it maybe but in terms of whether it's the same thing I don't I don't know, but I couldn't say if anybody's experiencing it in the same way, which is part of part of the issue, really, isn't it? So, <laughs> hmm. I feel like something this this could be a sisterhood thing. The formation of a sisterhood is somehow expected of women and even encouraged on some levels, whereas that that level of encouragement is not present when it's men. You know, we talk about homosocial bonds and all that, and but it's it's uh, that sort of bonding is sometimes not quite on. Uh, an emotional or or psychological level. I, I feel like this could tie in to how society tells men not to bond with other men on a psychological level or talk about their emotions. Yeah. Or, and I mean, loneliness is one yeah. of those. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly feels like a social a social pressure to me. And that is so difficult to overcome, isn't it? But it's it's somehow more acceptable for women to to form bonds in that sense. My 2021 reading list so far has been an awful lot of the excellent Laura Purcell, who does gothic horror. And it's very historical and it's very fixated around women. And I found, and again, based a lot on Laura Purcell, but also on other gothic writers that I've read, I tend to find that women in historical pieces are more isolated by society. So you've got this idea that you can feel desperately alone and betrayed by society, even when you're surrounded by people. I was thinking of the Laura Purcell ones where they go into a house as a maid, for example, and they the main character is just followed by her own secrets and eaten up inside and tormented and can't relate to the people around her. And I kind of feel like that's a different sort of loneliness that you've, in horror, you've got something that could be very internalised and that prevents you from being connected to those people around you. And I think it's kind of the inverse of what we were saying about sisterhood, the idea that women would look down on you if they knew about this secret that might be a spurned lover or a lost baby or something like that yeah and that's a very different kind of thing that you wouldn't necessarily get from a man who could quite happily gloat about a spurned lover or having hundreds of children um but that's just my specialized reading because like i said i do like a lot of gothic horror and that's a very strong theme within that yeah yeah Yeah, i can see that so i mean that kind of suggests to me that there are different different types of loneliness they're either forced forced into certain moulds by social conditioning. But I also like this idea that there are levels of loneliness within starting at a very individual level. So you can be extremely lonely, even if you're surrounded by people and surrounded by support networks, whatever, that, that doesn't change a loneliness that existing down right up to sort of an entire society's loneliness. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, that goes right across. And of course, sci-fi can... can suggest that so well sort of dealing on great big um great big sort of uh, scope for loneliness like an entire planet or something and then it could also talk about the the tiny issues affecting the the thing that comes to mind oddly is kind of star wars (laughs) which starts off starts off with well episode four starts off with luke skywalker just feeling so alone um on tatooine and then of course we're talking about the entire of a rebellion kind of feeling lonely, uh, wondering are there other people who are going to join in? And that theme of are other people going to join the rebellion? Who, how many of us are there is really a big thing throughout Star Wars. But it's like, oh, it's super levels of loneliness 
throughout Star Wars. Yeah. Hadn't really thought about that before. I feel like I've been seen. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just because Star Wars has always been my thing. You know, I I discovered it when I was really small. I I came across it and I was just obsessed with Star Wars and still am. You know, I still have a Star Wars duvet cover and yes, I am over 30, but (laughs) who cares? Um, (laughs) I too am a child of Star Wars, so I completely understand. Although I always had to play Princess Leia, obviously, for obvious reasons in the playground. And I so wanted to be R2-D2. I just wanted to be R2-D2. But there we go. Oh, well. More existential loneliness. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, it's interesting that you point out Star Wars and loneliness, given that I was a very lonely child. I was an only child, for one thing, but also I didn't have the luck of, of ever falling into a group of people who, who got me. Yeah. You know, I was the one who liked Star Wars and Star Trek and yeah. Yeah. talking about sci-fi and everyone else was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's just as you were, you were talking about that, it was interesting to me to reflect on, you know, that I latched onto something that talked about loneliness or represented that kind of loneliness that I felt. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's why it worked for so many people is that Luke's journey did reflect on loneliness and the rebellion reflected on loneliness in that way, in a way that felt very real at a time when people who were interested in sci-fi, you know, maybe struggled a bit to, well, particularly women, I certainly felt that, you know, what 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 do you mean you're interested in Star Wars? Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting when you look at um to look at star wars sorry to hijack it lucy i know it's not your thing um, <laughs> but you have say luke being the one who's very who's lonely who talks about being lonely who reaches out to other people who is kind of more in touch with his emotions whereas leia is lonely in a completely different way yeah. but she has all those the hallmarks of the the rough tough male hero that we would normally see who who's like I don't need anyone's help I can do this on my own and you know she just kind of goes and does it so that it's interesting that you have such an iconic film that so many people love of both genders and yet having something represented that's actually kind of the opposite of what we usually see that's so true. I hadn't thought of that before, but absolutely, you know, Leia's loneliness is this loneliness of I'm I'm going to lead. I'm going to do something completely out of, you know, a usual mold for for a princess. So the the loneliness comes from knowing you have to do something and uh, wondering how how it is you're gonna you're gonna manage to do that with nobody there to help you. What an incredible character she is. So, but as you say, we are completely Star Warsing everything here. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Someone ask another question quick. Quick. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Talking about science fiction and Star Wars and uh, other such kind of futuristic things, um, yep. do we think that technology plays a particular role in loneliness, in, in, well, in the representation of loneliness in science fiction? I think like an easy answer might be to say, you know, that can, that, that thing of disconnection and alienation disguises kind of, you know, a move on in technology and we're also alienated from each other. But I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily all completely reflected in, in sci-fi. I mean, um, the question whether we lose hum- humanity uh, because of the loneliness that technology brings you know, we're all communicating through screens, which we all feel like we know something about now anyway. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind is Spike Jones. Is it Spike Jones's film, Her? Where uh, the guy yep. is in love with an operating system, essentially. But actually, that's a, a real and deep relationship. I like the idea that there are many different angles that you could take on that uh, in, a sci- in a sci-fi way without having to sort of rely on the idea that it is simply alienating or disconnecting so there's plenty of scope there to do different things but isn't there um yeah yeah i'm a big fan of the moon is a harsh mistress and 
in that novel, he basically befriends the computer and the computer helps him make other friends. You know, this guy who is really lonely, he doesn't have much of a social life and his relationship with the technology actually helps him to connect to other humans. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I'm uh, to my shame, I've, I've not read that. I really should read it. I like it. Yeah. I recommend it. <laughs> I, that's good. I love recommendations. I'm going to write it down. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I well, well, like with all good sci-fi, you know, it's about the possibility of everything, isn't it? So it's freedom to kind of explore in different angles and say, could technology bring us to um, greater understanding of each other? Yeah, sure. I I see no reason why it has to be cast as a as a terrible thing that's anti-communication having said that i'm struggling to think of a novel that i really love that does that successfully but there must be loads and i'm just not thinking of them tonight anybody anybody think of any well i mean not not a novel but thinking about technology helping people communicate and get together and and so on i feel like i have a different relationship to technology in that sense because for me technology has allowed me to keep in touch with my family back home in Australia. And I remember hearing that my aunt, when she was going to university, she went to a university in Texas away from her family. And there, the only way that she could talk to her family was through letters. (laughs) And, you know, when I moved to England, I was like, well, oh my goodness, I can't imagine that. That was brave. Like, you know, I can just call my mom and dad, you know, or like video call them or message it's it's it doesn't really feel like I'm that far away from my family at all because I have the technology to constantly communicate with them yeah I can see that and I think if there's something that we've learned from the past the past year it's that technology can bring us together I mean I now speak to my family and you must all you know speak to yours through uh, through a computer essentially I think that also brings with it a strong sense that something is missing so there is like a a physical component, a human a human component somewhere that that's not quite there. But oh uh, yeah, completely. Yeah. First lockdown, I had no human contact for months. Oh, it's important. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I that that's uh, is it indefinable or is it just simply as straightforward as needing a hug? I I'm not sure what that is, but but a computer can't do it all, obviously. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So there are things it can give us and things that it takes away. When I was thinking about my answer to this question and the sci-fi that I watched, and admittedly, I'm not the, the biggest sci-fi fan. The one I thought about was Minority Report and Blade Runner um, as the two kind of futuristic ones where I really thought of it as technology being advanced. Yeah. And one of the things I thought about that was in the film in Blade Runner, when Tom Cruise is walking through the mall and he has all those little holograms popping up going, oh, hello, you want to buy this? Or last time you were in here, you bought that. And oh, this is on offer. And you bought three of these in the last year. And it struck me that even though he was surrounded by people, everyone was just having their own individual experience. And I also thought about it whilst I was shopping at Asda because now you have all those little tills where you can go and do your own little shop and you don't need to talk to anyone. And I've made friends with quite a lot of the staff at Asda and I go in and I deliberately go to a staff counter so that I can talk to people, but it would be so easy not to and to remove all human interactions, even at the lowest level of just going into a shop or anything and just completely have technology take over. And like I say, it was the scene in Minority Report that just made me feel, wow, technology has just forced everybody on that train in that shopping centre, everyone just to be in their own little world, even though they're surrounded by everybody else. Although I suppose you could argue that when you're on a train or walk through a shopping mall now, we've all got headphones in and we're we're most of the way there already. <laughs> I think you're true. That reminds, um, that reminds me of a short story in a collection called uh, London Centric from Yukon Press, actually. And um, it's it's kind of a bit cheeky because I do have a story in there, but I'm thinking about a different story, uh, which is the visions of a future London. And um, there's one in there in which 
it's a commute essentially, but it turns out to not be a, a physical commute, but a, a, a mental commute, a digital commute that's put upon people as the price they have to pay in order to reach the city to work. So you're essentially just sitting at home in or in VR or whatever, being bombarded by adverts constantly in this sort of makeshift uh, space in order to kind of give them the space to just sell at you. And maybe that's that's the great danger of technology is that it can enable simply being completely cut off if that's what you want to do. But also it can increase that feeling of loneliness and alienation by using you simply as a, a part of what it's been programmed to do, which is not about you. It's about you being the end product rather than enabling you to do what you need to do. So, yeah. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the thing. It could go either way, couldn't it? I mean, technology—it certainly would enable you to to completely cut yourself off now, if that's what you felt you wanted to, the direction you wanted to go in with your life. I think it's by Andrew Wallace, actually. I think it might be called Commute. Anyway, it's a really interesting idea. I do have to say, what you were saying about it going either way is quite true, because when I was balancing out what I thought about Minority Report and Blade Runner. I thought of Star Trek Next Gen and how technology just brings whole worlds and people together and allows translations and help and aid and all sorts of things. But, you know, that's a really fluffy future. And I hate to say it, Minority Report and the others like that kind of feel a little bit more realistic than Next Gen. Although (laughs) I, I would love to live in Next Gen. That would be amazing. I think it slightly unlikely. Me too. Well, actually, did you watch... The latest series of Discovery, where they went just like a little bit further on into a future, and then there's like the next next generation of holodeck again, and uh, again they managed to suggest that that would be able to raise a child successfully. Well, you know, as successfully as you possibly could. Although there's still this element, the, the human element. Although it's not a human element because it's an alien. What the hell am I saying? Anyway, uh, yeah. So you could successfully raise an alien in what we would class as a human, a humanist type style through a holodeck that's so attuned to our needs rather than the needs of the system. Yeah. I do love Star Trek as well. Though. Uh, well, yeah, Charlotte and I are, are on the Star Trek train as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, when Megan began the the introduction with Space, the Final Frontier, I've, I've got to mention Star Trek at least once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yes. And as you say, that is about the flip side of if we all managed to effectively overcome loneliness and communicate and reach out. You know, I think I see effective communication as the antidote to loneliness. Maybe that's just like a big a, a big step forward in terms of, I don't know if that's true, but um, for, for me, I think that you banish loneliness with communication. The thing I see is in our world, in the real world as it is now, People will say things like, oh, we've never been so connected, but we've never been so lonely, you know, when talking about all these kids on their smartphones and whatever it is. But I think part of the problem is that we seem to to put our hopes on technology, that somehow we're saying, well, if I can invent this or if we could do this, it means I'd never have to be lonely again. And then once that technology is available, we realize we're still lonely because it's something innate within us. It's not something that you can cure or you can just find the answer to. I think, yeah, I think that's, that really makes sense to me. You know, it's not, it's not a cure. It's not a solution. It's a tool and how you're going to use that tool is up to you. But we do love these big, easy suggestions and answers, don't we? So uh, the idea that, oh, well, if we, if we did this, then everything would be sorted strikes me as unlikely in any situation, but particularly when it comes to solving the existential crisis of loneliness in all humanity, seems quite a lot to ask for, you know, Twitter to solve that. Say. So I, I think it's an innate part of us that we, that doesn't need solving in a way, perhaps it just needs addressing more than solving. Yeah. So when you look at something like the Borg in Star Trek, where you have a society where they all become one yeah. and they are all all together, they've morphed into kind of one hive mind. 
Is there a place for loneliness in a world like that? Are we actually less afraid of the Borg than we are kind of wishing we could be them? Ooh, I think we're really afraid of losing ourselves. And I think uh, that's why maybe loneliness is an essential component is because it keeps it keeps us as who we are as individuals and we we would be very afraid to lose that and that's not to say that that fear should be the guiding force of our lives yeah i mean the borg is presented as so negative aren't they <laughs> yes like, completely you, know, you don't want to be assimilated do you you don't want to be no and then it kind of cops out a bit because Picard is kind of like Locutus and he's sort of, you know, he gets special pass, basically. He's like, oh, but you're so amazing. So you get a bit of privilege there. And then that doesn't look so bad. It's like, well, if I could have special privileges, if I'm super cool, if I am Locutus of Borg, is that better than just being normal Borg? <laughs> Some are more equal than others. Mm, yes. Yes. So maybe that's the worrying concept within it as well is kind of well what what would my standing be maybe we're creatures that need some sort of social standing in order to function effectively (laughs) yeah you can't eliminate hierarchy even Mm. from the collective yeah i do have an ulterior theory to put forward and i will try and phrase it without any specific spoilers okay i would suggest that the integration you get with the borg is from a moral and social point of view, a step backwards. So you would be giving up your identity to become less than you are. Whereas I suggest that in your book, in Skyward Inn, the idea of togetherness when it is presented shows people coming together, but becoming greater and happier and more joyful than they are alone. So I see what you're saying about a loss of identity. And I know that, you know, obviously that's something that's explored a lot by sci-fi writers, but I also think that sometimes there's a question of trade-off. Like, would I actually be happier if I gave up all my insecurities and my fears? And in the answer of the Borg, it's like, well, very definitely not because I'm going to take a step back into a raging killing machine. But other sci-fi writers have suggested, well, you know what, actually there might be benefits to being, being the whole rather than just the sum of the parts. Yeah, and I think that goes back to what I was saying about, you know, there's room for everything in in good sci-fi when we're looking at things as complex and as beautiful as they all can be, is to accept that, you know, what what do we gain or what do we lose by being part of a community or by isolationism or by coming together? I mean, there's parts of Skyward Inn which is very much about questions that really are pertinent to right now kind of uh, it starts off with the the UK's kind of broken up into pieces but there's this new world force called the coalition and they're all they've reached an understanding that enables them to act as one essentially but that that in itself is not necessarily a great thing so I I hope that the book kind of brings many levels to a lot of those questions about whether assimilation or separation are things that that you can look at in lots of different ways. Yeah, complexity. That's it's just so mind-bogglingly huge as a set of ideas, isn't it? I'm not um, I'm not sure there are any easy answers here. And, uh, and all I try to do when I write really is to discuss things or bring up questions that I myself have. So, yeah, just looking for answers and never quite finding them. I like how you're talking about, you know, the isolation there and and I often think about sci-fi and the way it represents prejudice and isolationism and that kind of small town mindset, which I think Skyward Inn does quite well, Thanks. where you have, you literally have a small town, but the uh, the foreigners, you have foreigners who are just people foreigners, but you also have <laughs> foreigners from another planet. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole lot of level of foreigner, basically, isn't there? Really? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, does that make a difference to a small community? You know, so that's that's interesting in itself. Do you have levels of foreign? That's strange, but certainly, yeah, I, I think that's probably true. Is it is in itself a really complex thing? It's not as straightforward as them and us. Well, I think when you've got prejudice in a novel that involves aliens, you kind of look at where all the different cells are. It's like, well, there's me and my brother, or there's me and my family, 
or there's me and my village versus the other village, or yeah. there's the two villages versus the town, or there's the human race versus aliens. So I think, yes. you know, throwing <laughs> another race in there just makes you kind of decide where your your little group is going to be. And I quite yeah. like this, a good amount of Skyward Inn is, tr- is Dom and Jem trying to convince the townspeople, the Keatons and Isley should be part of their community and should therefore be on the inside rather than foreigners within their myths. Yeah, absolutely. And I tried to reflect that same that same question in many, many different levels in the sense of can we persuade other people to accept effectively? Um, and I think it even goes down to the smallest of family units in the fact that Jem and her brother Dom are trying to persuade Jem's son Foss to to take Jem back, although she she went away and left him, and now she's back. You know, can can you persuade her own son to take her back and accept her as family? But then at the top end of it, you've got can you can you persuade an entire planet to accept another planet, their existence, what that does to us? You know, it's um yeah, trying to reflect it on ma- many many different levels because I'm not sure whether it is all the same thing or if it's different. I don't know. Well, going back to my frontiers metaphor, <laughs> but ultimately, I mean, we we can look back on, you know, when European explorers set out across the world and as far as they were concerned, they were discovering new worlds mm-hmm. and it's kind of really sad, but I think very accurate that most of the time when they discovered a new place, they always thought that they were superior to that other race so or the the people who were living there so i can see us very easily going and exploring the universe and any life that we found we would just assume that we were better than and humans are strange in that we both will have that superiority complex while at the same time being terrified that somehow they'll come and take our jobs it's it's both, isn't it? <laughs> it's both. Um, yeah, I'm reminded of a, a Stanislav Lem book. I can't remember which one it is, but the the idea is that for the first time, humans are going out and finding, uh, landing on other planets. But of course, you you don't know what what's going to be the important point of contact or reference. All of your references are useless. So. Um, I think they spend sort of the first 14 days trying to communicate with something which turns out to essentially be a rock, but it looks like it might, it might be an intelligence. So they try everything to kind of ascertain intelligence. So it could go the other way where you kind of give great intelligence to things which have none, because in the same sense that we would recognise it, because you're kind of thinking, but we don't understand why they're doing these things. So, yeah. Ascertaining uh, how to communicate across that and whether, if we are such hierarchical beings, if we then have to decide where we are in that hierarchy, I I suspect you're probably right that we put ourselves fairly high up in the whole, aren't we brilliant kind of (laughs) of things. But that's that's human nature. Let's hope they'll be forgiving if we ever get Yeah, but it's also, it plays into that kind of inconsistency that we have, the where we're striving constantly to find other life in the universe. But if we did find other life in the universe, we'd probably be fucking terrified. I would, yeah. <laughs> I would have thought so. And it, it all boils down to fear again, isn't it? It's the fear of being alone, but the fear of not being alone. Are we alone in the universe? Well, it's terrifying to think that we are and terrifying to think that we aren't. So fear is the overriding thing going on there, really. Um, mm-hmm. But the, yeah. the thing is that fear never really uh, it never really comes to pass in the way that you imagine it. So if it did happen and we actually got contacted by life elsewhere, I'd love to think that the fear simply passes away and the experience is left. Are we being Zen again? I'm being Zen again. But did you know huh. what I mean? It's like uh, you, we wouldn't necessarily have the fear anymore. So what then manifests in its place? That's an interesting question. Oh, but I don't know. I don't think we'd be human. Yeah, it's like fear about 
what they might do to us, this this strange alien race. But I always always feel that fear also comes from like loss of control and mm. loss of so-called privilege and independence and you know and authority. So I, f- I almost feel like if we found an alien race, the thing that you know, yeah, there'd be a lot of people screaming about all those science fiction films they've seen and how they're all going to devour us. But I think there'd also be a whole lot of people out there thinking how they're going to take advantage of the situation and how are they going to maintain human supremacy. Mm. And we're back again to how, you know, all of these big things aren't really solutions for any of us, are they? You know, it's like, well, if we, I I think it's in Star Trek where, is it first contact where they say, well, uh, they invent the warp, warp engine and then the, the I think it's Vulcans. Vulcans turn up and yep. live long and prosper, and then thirty years later, everything's pretty much sorted because we've realised we're alone, and that that solved all of our kind of you know we all pulled together. I think maybe you're right. That's not really going to happen. <laughs> I love the idea that it does that it would unite everybody, but that does seem like one of those you know big solutions that maybe isn't really in tune with the problems that we face. I think mm. if we were enlightened then maybe, but we're not. <laughs> Let's <Yeah>. be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a good thing too, because then you can't write sort of complicated books about it any longer. So, and I do like doing that. Well, after just totally dissing the entire human race, finding <laughs> <laughs> them to oblivion, <laughs> where do we go from there? Yeah, yeah, we've done loneliness. We've done fear. We've done existential terror. Yeah. Okay. That's good. We're all doomed. <laughs> no, I think, you know, fear fear can be overcome. And in my best moments, I definitely think that we can all pull together and discover new ways of... No, you're not buying it, are you? No, never mind. Well, I was just thinking, would you say then that the opposite of fear is compassion? Not sure about that one. The first in a strange thing to mind way. Is that the opposite of fear is knowledge, maybe. But yeah. getting loads more knowledge doesn't seem to have stopped us all being really afraid. So I'm not mm. sure that's necessarily true. Or maybe it's control. Ooh, yeah. I was about to say power or control. Yeah, I'm with Megan on this one. But that might just be because we're very cynical. I don't know. <laughs> a lot of very powerful people seem very afraid. So I'm not sure yeah. about that one either. Maybe, the, maybe compassion's the wrong word. Maybe empathy. I don't know. Yeah. I like that because it's an outward, an outward emotion and fear is so inward. Do you know what I mean? So maybe the mm. answer is to, to move out. I really can't get any more zen. I'm so sorry. Put it down to tiredness. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have some zen, especially in this climate. <laughs> Should all be a bit more zen. Yes, it's aimed for more zen. Um, I think there's, a, there's another novel in that, to be honest, though, the whole question of, you know, what's the opposite of fear and... Mm. How do we strive to overcome that? Many novels in that. Yeah. Yeah. As long as we're in the acknowledgements. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> we get a cut. Yeah. <laughs> I was inspired to write this. <laughs> I think we should all appear as characters. It'd be great. Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I'm to like- die like Sean Bean. I'm sure that could be arranged. <laughs> which of the many ways in which Sean Bean has died over the years do you wish to emulate? I don't know. As long as it is Sean Bean worthy. <laughs> I'd, I'd want to do a Boromir, I think. Oh, love a Boromir. Yeah. Yeah. I would have followed you. That's what she can say to us. I would have followed you, Charlotte, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> We say yes, I know, <laughs> and then you can die nobly, and then we'll move on and conquer new worlds and podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> Bring Lucy You know back we wouldn't be able to do it without. <laughs> well, I kind of feel that we all need to die as per our genre. So Megan <laughs> has to die by some terrible tech failure. Lucy has to have some noble death. And surely I need yeah. to be just stabbed up with a, a meat cleaver or something. Or oh, in the true horror. Vein. Yeah, or, or got by a werewolf or something. I don't know. Oh, well, okay. so, sorted that out. 
something really strange and multi-genre related has to happen to me, which I dread the thought of. So, yeah. (laughs) You're the the writer. You're in control. You're fine. Oh, that's okay then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Skyward Inn, the new novel, has a tagline. says, this is a place we can be alone together. Hmm. And I really like this because while it, it talks about loneliness. It also kind of has a hopeful vibe to it. And yeah. I just wondered if you thought that, you know, what you think about sci-fi being hopeful rather than this kind of dystopian, pessimistic view that has kind of the past sort of decade or so really taken hold in the genre? Because yeah. I feel like now we're seeing more stories of hope. Yeah, I yeah, I like the idea of that. I think Skyward Inn is a hopeful book, but as ever, you know, what whatever people take from it is fine. Yes, I love the idea that sci-fi is becoming more hopeful or has found a, a time in which to express hope for the future. I feel like we could all use a bit of that right now. But I think sci-fi always has been quite hopeful in ways. You know, we've talked about Star Trek. I, I can think of no more hopeful vision than that kind of all coming together. Which is why I like Star Trek when it, when you know, it doesn't turn out that the the Federation is all rotten to its core or whatever. I kind of like it when it doesn't do that so much. Although I totally understand yeah. why why it does choose to do that every now and again. Yes, please. I mean, I've talked before tonight about the idea of great sci-fi being able to have everything within it to be complex, and hopefulness has to be one of those emotions that has a place within it. So. I, I, yeah, more of those books, definitely. I have to say that that's one of the things that I love about Ursula Le Guin's sci-fi is that ultimately they, you know, they were very complex and interesting and and very diverse in the kinds of things that she touched on, but yeah. they always had an element of hope. And I totally agree. Yeah. And yeah. she she was a big influence on Skyward Inn. I see it particularly in the final sections. Kind of when we actually get to Kita, I don't want to give anything away, but I, I feel her influence on it because I did want it to be not straightforwardly kind of terrible or or straightforwardly hopeful either, but to be, you know, talking about complicated issues. And she does that so well. And yeah, she definitely a huge, huge influence on me. Ah, love Ursula. She was just so wonderful. Um, anyway, <clears throat> I get overcome. I love her so much. <laughs> um, okay, so thank you again for coming and chatting to us. It's been wonderful. Again, thank you. Oddly, I've really enjoyed it, even though we've really sort of gone right through the uh, the gamut of sad and lonely emotions. But there we go. But we we did it in a positive way. We did. We did. And we ended up about talking about hopes, so. Yes. Perfect note to end on. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.